Hello listeners, before diving into today's episode, I wanted to share a few ways you can go deeper with the ideas I talk about in this podcast and support my work. The first is my book, The Pathless Path, which many of you have probably already heard about, but if you haven't purchased it already, I really think you'll love it. The second is The Pathless Path Community, which I just opened up as a one-time pay-what-feels-right access fee. And in that group, you can meet hundreds of other people from around the world on unconventional paths like me. Finally, I'm working on a second book tentatively called Good Work, which is going to explore my deeper relationship with work and how that led to a lot of the transformations in my life. You can follow along in my newsletter, Pathless, which you can also find a link to that in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. Without further ado, let's dive into the show. Welcome to The Pathless Path. I'm Paul Millard, and in this podcast, we examine the invisible scripts that run our lives and dare to imagine new stories for work and life. Today, I am talking with Melvin Varghis. I am super excited to talk to him today because I think he is someone that is very aligned with me. We're both girl dads and trying to design lives around our family and trying to figure out what that really means, doing the weird work that we're doing, which doesn't really come with a plan, even if we wanted one. He is a licensed psychologist who moved from practicing uh, on his own and I think part of other institutions to working on his own as an entrepreneur uh, for other online therapists and health professionals, uh, creating all sorts of stuff. He has an amazing uh, podcast where he talks about these ideas, shares his journey, and he's been doing that for, I think, eight years now, which is just impressive. I love uh, people who stick to that long game. And we're going to talk about his whole evolution, uh, what he's up to now, and uh, riff a little on what it, how do you do this path with kids and a family and the trade-offs. Welcome to the podcast, Melvin. Paul, uh, I'm really grateful for you, brother, and uh, excited for today's conversation. First question we always ask, what are the stories and scripts you grew up with that were sort of guiding lights about what you should be doing as an adult in the world? Uh, so, you know, I, I have South Indian parents, right? And the stereotype of typical Indian parents are, uh, you know, there's kind of four options, right? Career-wise, which is doctor, lawyer, engineer. Although I heard the fourth option recently, which was failure. And so... <laughs> <laughs> that's, so a, that's a complete set. <laughs> that is the, it is the complete set. So, yeah, uh, what... So, you know, my, I, I remember early on, like I was originally supposed to go to medical school, be, be, uh, be a pediatrician. And then, I, you know, I did well up in, you know, high school. I struggled a bit with like AP Chem, AP Cal. And then once I got into undergrad and we took those classes, I was like, oh my gosh, this is not how my brain thinks. And uh, I let go of that and uh, ended up psychology major and then went and, you know, the PhD route, which was uh, still a ton of work. But uh, so I, I I don't know, like, I guess I'm a doctor, but not an MD, right? Uh, which is like really, I mean, which I'm obviously grateful for. But there's actually a subtlety sometimes I feel like, in, you know, uh, 
in the Indian communities sometimes, but not all the time. You've talked a bit about how you not only felt you had to be good, but you had to be excellent at everything you did growing up. Talk to me about that. And was that internalized just on your own um, awareness or was that imposed too? So, I mean, the little bit of backstory on this was, you know, my parents immigrated to the U.S. in 1989. And prior to that, they had multiple opportunities to come to the U.S. But my dad was a lawyer in India. My mom was working as a nurse. And they had life pretty much figured out, right? They we had our family there and all of those different things. And so they kept delaying the immigration process. And they kept saying, like, we want to just table coming over to the U.S. because we're just not sure, we're not sure. And then I think in 89, the U.S. government was probably like, can't just keep tabling like you got to make a decision or lose this opportunity and so i mean my dad at you know in his like mid mid 30s right decided huh you know uproot and you know come come to the u.s and so i share that because you know english is not my first language right so i remember finishing first grade there starting second grade here and i started in english as the second language classes one of my f- most vivid memories was, you know, walk c- coming out of the plane and we were staying with my aunt and my cousin, who I'd never be- met before, he asked me something around like, I'm guessing it was like something around, do I want pizza? And I remember the word pizza, but obviously I had no idea what pizza was. I had never actually seen cheese in my life <laughs> until then. Um, and so... All of that to say, I internalized that, you know, I'm the oldest sibling, so I had to make it work, right? Like my parents sacrificed a lot, right? Um, And they, you know, would always tell us like we came because we wanted to give you more opportunities. You know, we wanted you guys to have education and it's a wonderful thing, yet it puts a tremendous amount of pressure to not mess up, you know? Yeah, it's such a, it's such a common thing you hear with people that emigrate to the U.S. Yeah. yeah. And um, you you often hear the like how much pressure that puts on kids, right? Do you think there was a positive side of that too? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's like, I don't know. I mean, there's like, you know, there's stress, there's distress, and then there's eustress, right? Like, so I think there were situations where it was more eustress, right? Like it motivated me to want to accomplish things. And Generally, like, I would say it was very positive, right, in terms of, as very disciplined, you know, um, and I, I wanted to accomplish things. But I think that the tr- biggest trade-off, I, I think, has been that my identity got wrapped up in what I was doing and in my accomplishments, right? But the positive is obviously strong, like, grateful for the strong work ethic, right, and I don't think my parents did this on purpose, but, you know, many, especially elementary, middle, and most of high school, pretty much, we went back to India every summer. And I think I was in sixth grade when I first flew unaccompanied from Dallas to to India. And growing up two or two and a half months in India every year, you just gave you a different context, right? Like, you live in the U.S., look where you might be, where you, people are here, right? 
And I don't know, I was just, I don't, again, I don't think my parents did it on purpose, but I think it was, it gives you a different framework, right? Yeah. And did you see, we, we struggled to have good food, especially in the nineties. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Now looking back at all those commercials that we saw, like, it looked amazing. Like, right. Uh, yeah. What, uh, what was it like in Texas? I mean, I know you were in Texas. Uh, yeah. I think the, st- the stereotype of Texas is like a very white conservative place. But yeah. living here, I've been um, surprised at how diverse it is. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of a place that's been growing for a very long time. There's all sorts of different immigrant groups across yep. the, the state, especially yep. Hispanic uh, immigrants. How, how was Texas growing up? Yeah, so I had a very similar experience to you as well. Um, I remember even early on when I took those ESL classes, just seeing like lots of different ethnicities. Uh, the The school, I remember, especially the the high school that I went to was very racially and socioeconomically diverse. Um, and it did, I remember like having friends and family from out of Texas being like, do you guys you know, ride a horse to school, <laughs> whatever, right? I'm like, no. And, you know, like it, there were all those stereotypes, but I, I found the same thing. I found a surprising amount of diversity and uh, actually a surprising amount of tolerance. Now looking back, and again, I couldn't connect those dots or even understand that language at that age, but it's what I found. So, so you went into college, you thought, okay, I might be a doctor, um, which is also just crazy that people decide that at 18. I'm still trying to figure out what I want to be when I quote unquote grow up. But yeah. um, <laughs> it's a crazy, it is, it's a, it's a crazy pressure, you know, like how does one know that, you know, at that age? Yeah. Do you know what you want to be when you grow up now? Oh, what I'm doing now. hundred <laughs> percent. That's awesome. And yeah. is it mostly be, and I've heard you talk about this and I love it, uh, is it mostly because do you measure success around okay how am I am I spending my days how I want to be spending them? Yeah, I think in the early you know I'm eight years into this like creator entrepreneur journey, and I think in the initial days I measured it by revenue, but I think these days, especially after our daughter was born, um, I started looking at a more holistic view. Uh, and I started designing it more around the life that I wanted to live. Uh, and I think this has been one of the hardest things because, you know, in the online space, right? Like there's such an emphasis on revenue and this sort of like, I don't know, this strict like lifestyle that really didn't honestly resonate with me because I'm not that like flash, like I kind of want a simple, boring. You don't like, need a Lambo? No, not yet. <laughs> and not, <laughs> not ever. Yet. <laughs> not forever. Apparently, yeah. this is a thing I heard. Uh, side note: not with Lambos, but with planes. There's actually entire companies that create, and where you can like rent a plane for an yeah. hour to do Instagram. It's like crazy. But no, that like never resonated for me. And I think once I, you know, I know we'll talk more about this, but I think having being a man and raising and having a daughter, I think it puts so many things into context that living for her and wanting 
her to have the opportunities that I have had because of my own gender, right? Uh, that became a bigger why for me. And That's awesome. Yeah. So, but I don't know that, I don't know. I, that, I mean, I'm, I'm 41 and then, you know, we also had, you know, our daughter when I was in my late 30s. So I think part of it's also just the wisdom of age too, you know? Yeah, definitely. We just had my daughter, I'm 38. Uh, my mom and dad had me in when they were in their young 20s. It's mm. it's sort of a different game you're playing. I feel so yeah. blessed to have made so many mistakes uh, yeah. when younger and really yep. figure out a lot of these things. Um, yep. And we'll definitely dive into that. I wanted to take a step back first and give uh, the listeners a little perspective of your journey. So you decided to pivot into psychology. You ended up going to do a PhD. You did a couple postdocs as well. Yeah. Um, where was your head at at that time when you were doing the postdocs? Were you thinking, okay, my goal is to do my private practice. I'm going to make a good living doing that, and that's it? Was that the mindset at that time? Because I think it was early 2000s, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, at that point, it was like, like yeah, early 2000, 2009, 2000 to 2012. Uh, so, you know, I, I did my clinical training at Bandy and I had a job offer there. So I was going to work at the university, at the counseling center, um, either at the counseling center or at the med school um, and doing cl- like therapy primarily, a little bit of assessment. And my vision was to do that and then do like private practice on the side or like maybe teach a class at a community college or something like that. Entrepreneurship wasn't even on my radar. Uh, again, you know, I don't, I don't fault my parents at all because I think they did what made the most sense to them and they did what they thought was right. And they thought they chose a path or they encouraged a path because they thought this was the safest. Like, my gosh, we have left in all our people, you know, left our country and what's the most best way and what's the most safe, right? So I've never taken a business or marketing class ever, you know, it's all been like just learning. So, uh, that was the path. I mean, and it is wild because I just passed last year was my, uh, 10 years of getting licensed, you know, and I just think about how even in the span of seven years, how much my career has evolved, you know, because at, I know the 2012 Mel would have been like, okay, I was going to be like a training director at the university counseling center or something, you know? Yeah. What started to plant a seed that a different direction was possible? So I think throughout my life, now I look back, I think there were always seeds or markers there. Um, just to even share like a little story, my I grew up primarily with my maternal grandparents and you know, they lived, I remember they got like a refrigerator maybe in the 80s, right? But they had this room in the back of their house, which is like a storage room. So they would store grain and all of that kind of stuff in the back. And it's also where my grandpa kept like all of his tools and it was right next to the, the kitchen. So I spent a lot of time in that room and I think particularly so my grandma could kind of keep an eye on me, but they basically gave me like hammers saws you know wood like nails i mean i must have been five six at most and i mean i think about that now but i think there was just this 
it fostered in me to always create and be a creator. And I think now looking back, anytime I have felt constrained or limited my creative potential, I think there was always a subconscious part of me that wanted to to break out of that. Um, yeah. I find a lot of people that take these paths, there's always stories like that. When you look back, it's for me, I was writing on the internet when I was young, I was building websites and then Mm -hmm. I went and got a career because that's what you were supposed to do. Yeah. And then I'm, I'm a little older like you and slowly it was, oh, wow, I can do those things I loved doing as a kid Mm -hmm. and actually pursue this. Um, What, what inspired you? What were some of your first experiments? I don't know if the podcast was your first experiment leaning into that or there were others before that. Yeah, so I always had like little side hobbies. So like you did website design. I learned how to like build computers and overclock them and all of that stuff, you know. To, did to, you subscribe feed- to PC Magazine growing up and stuff like that? <laughs> Listen, Paul, I didn't go to that level. It sounds like you may have. I did. I I, I didn't build the computers, but I was just so nerdy about it. I loved it. Yeah. But I think that's what uh, I, but listen, my nerdy moment, like obsessively reading about, you know, every NVIDIA video card and, you know, how to maximize the, the whatever the GPU or whatever on it, right? Um, so I had moments like that where I was learning to build com- uh, computers there was a season where I was like really like into landscape photography uh, to the point where my parents, while I was in my PhD program, they were worried that I was going to drop out of my PhD program because I was really into photography. And I, I wasn't really considering it, but I just thought there were all these hints that I was just, there was a creative part that needed to emerge. Um, and, but I never put it together. I, we can definitely talk more on this, but I think there was always this part of me and maybe part of it was like disappointing my parents or what would like sort of the Indian society, like our, you know, our our community think like if I actually did something atypical. Right. And so I I always got to that edge and I just never actually took the leap. Um, Yeah. What actually made me do it? I think partly was honestly moving to Philadelphia. Part of it was having a very supportive partner um, part of it was privilege, right? Like my, you know, my, my partner is a professional. So we had the privilege of that, you know, dual income and health insurance and all that. Uh, part of it was, I mean, I, I, so there were, you know, kind of two events. So I know we'll talk more about our daughter, but like the first event was in 2015 when I was working in a group practice doing clinical work fee for service. So, you know, if you see clients, you get paid. If you don't, you don't get paid. And I, you know, typically had really good show rates, but the Northeast got hit with a nor'easter. And, you know, when you grow up in Texas your whole life, you don't, your understanding of snow is like, I don't, like, what's a nor'easter? Like, it will be fine, right? I mean, 30 inches of snow in about a day and a half later. Oh, this right? was, this is like March, 2015. Yeah. Yep. I March remember 10. this so vividly. Yeah. Boston got the most snow in yes. one week. Yes. And my car yes. literally became an ice block. And that was the last time I owned a car. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm done with this. I'm done. I'm done with you, Boston. I'm done with the car. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, but that's what happened. And so I ended up canceling about 22 clients because, I mean, telehealth wasn't a thing. 
I could have called them, but half my clients were panicking because they're, you know, like covered in snow and worried about, you know, how are we going to power lines and everything else down? And we were saving up for the 20% down payment on our first home. And I had this moment where I said, oh my gosh, this is going to be my career if I don't take the typical employment route. And I think that realization coupled with, you know, whatever that sort of work ethic that emerged. Um, in the early days, I woke up at 3.30 a.m. to record podcast episodes. Um, and then I would take a shower at 7 and then get on a 7.50 or like 8.10 train to go to Center City, see clients for an entire day, come back by 6-something and repeat it. So that that's pretty incredible. What bring alive that determination? Like what what was keeping you going? Were you, were you just like I need to make a change? I think that that nor'easter was what broke my creativity loose. Like all of those different things and I I I don't know if that I explicitly like thought of the moment, but I would I, I felt like, you know, you're a creative person and you can do some stuff, but it's also very low risk too, right? Like, but also when you've had 20, you know, like a thousand plus dollars of lost income, right? And you're like, oh my gosh, is this going to be my career? Like, I don't know, that, that, at that moment, that's what really propelled me. Um, and then I realized I just... Like, I love therapy. I love clinical work. But do I love it to the level that I love what I do now? I don't think so, you know? So. Yeah. And talk to me about uh, your wife. It sounds like she's been very supportive. How specifically, uh, What like, what stands out when you think of her support? Because I know this is so powerful and it's something I'm trying to talk about more because uh, Angie's support for me has just been so powerful for me really just accepting uh, what I'm yeah. up to completely. Um, maybe bring that alive a little bit more specific stories that stand out around that. Uh, so I can share like two. So, you know, we we identify as Christian and we actually met on a, a humanitarian trip to New Orleans. So we spent a week down there helping rebuild that community center hit by Hurricane Katrina. And so like her heart is very full of like service and a desire to help others. So when I like presented this podcast idea to her, like, and I, and I said, you know, I, I think this podcasting thing could really take off. I don't know. I don't even think half the people know what a podcast is, right? This is 2015. But she said, you know, why don't you try it? Because you just, the worst case is it doesn't work out. And the best case is like it, it helps people. Right. Um, and so if she hadn't said those words, honestly, Paul, like, I don't think I would have started, you know, I would have just found some way to like rationalize that, you know, I just either got to find another job or, you know, do something else, um, to, to make it kind of work. Um, so that was like one, um, I think the sort of second one was, you know, when I got my first like negative review on the podcast. That was really hard because, I mean, you know, people like us, right? Like that are like, I think just genuinely kind people and we put our heart and soul into what we do 
And then to have somebody on the internet that has presumably never met us, right? Like, I remember ha- my first... The haters yeah. never actually listen to the episodes. They just, like, <laughs> re- react to the title or yeah. the concept of what they think it is. But, yeah, yeah. It, it really hurts early it on. It does. It does hurt. And Now I'm like, eh, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I am, too. I think we, I've gotten more immune to it. But that first one, like, the person, like, like... It was a great image, actually, but it just kind of hurts still. They, like, liken my episodes to, like, a sandwich or something, like, full of fluff, but not a substance or something around those. I was like, it's a great visual image, and that kind of hurts. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but when, when, I, when I got that review, I mean, she was just so encouraging. She was like, you know, the longer you do stuff like this, it's definitely going to happen. So, yeah. How'd you come up with the name? Was that the name from the beginning? It's such a good <laughs> name. Uh, man, like when I get asked this question, like... S- selling want, the couch, by the way. Yeah. Uh, I want to give like a really, like, yeah, I knew what I was doing. But <laughs> to be honest, I was thinking the word couch, right? And I kept looking at like instantdomainsearch.com and just trying to see like what other words lined up. Couldn't find anything that was that interesting. And then literally in the shower like i'm you know going through and i do this like dumb thing where sometimes i'll write on this tile right just in my hands i haven't gone to the marker level yet right so i'm like couch thinking of like you know two words before after was like sell sell the couch sell selling the couch it's like selling the couch it's a good one so i literally put on my towel dripping wet my wife's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I gotta go buy a domain. I gotta go see if it's available. <laughs> <laughs> and so I go and, and lo and behold, selling the couch is available. But what I didn't realize is my niche is now going from clinical to online income, right? And the symbolism of selling the couch, like that has, that was pure accident. So. Yeah. It, it, at the beginning, you probably thought, okay, this is the way to, um, make money as a um, licensed therapist, and then uh, you it sort of planted the seeds for your future metamorphosis <laughs> of okay. moving on from that. And yeah, yeah, it's, it's such a. I love when names just flow. Like it's something yeah. I hear, and it makes sense. People might have different meanings to it, but it just it just works. It's yeah. uh, it's beautiful. And talk to me. So I couldn't find your early episodes. I wanted to listen to them. I think you only go back to ninety eight, um, episode ninety eight. But what were the first uh, couple episodes about? Oh, I have to fix that. Um, yeah. Um, so the first uh, the first episode was an intro one that I recorded seven times because I didn't know how to edit albums and I was in GarageBand. So I was like, I got to get this perfect. And so that was that was the first one. The second was, oh gosh, this, this is another story. So it was a colleague here that I found out was local, and he was a psych- sports psychologist who was doing um, what they call like nutrition or weight training programs for athletes. Like he was selling these like di- like digital versions, right? This is 2015, and I came to find out he was in Philadelphia, and I w- reached out to him, and I was like hey, I'm launching this thing called the podcast. Like, I want to interview you. Would you be open to this? 
And he's like, sure. And I, I was like really starstruck, right? And then he ended up coming to, um, coming to the house because he was like, I can just drive over there. So we literally, because I only had one mic, right? I've got one, you know, $50 ATR 2100. And That's the best starter mic there is. Best starter mic. Best starter mic. Uh, I've got an ironing board, right? <laughs> so I stick the ironing board in my little home office, stick the ATR right in the middle. And I was like, okay, Corey, I'm going to ask you a question and then I'm going to point to you. And then you come over and talk into the mic and then you point to me when you're done. <laughs> we did this for the entire episode. So it was basically about his journey. And so the early days, I interviewed a lot of therapists about how they built their practices, the lessons they learned. Um, it was very scripted because I learned podcasting from like John Lee Dumas. So he had it's a very set format. And so in my mind, I thought that's the same way I should do a podcast. So I would have these standard questions. What's your favorite, you know, business book that's inspired you? What's your favorite quote? What's, you know, so those were a lot of those episodes. And then I think my first solo episode was, um, I, I think I, I talked about like my, like what I had learned from like a month of podcasting or something. Um, that was, that was generally it. I, I didn't listen to the first, I would say 60 episodes of my podcast for a number of years. Cause I was, this is so cringe. I'm not about this. Yeah, that makes sense. The, the early phase of creating, um, I try to tell people that are starting, there's sort of two phases of creating. Phase one, you your only goal is to just ship a lot of stuff because mm. you need to get through the period where you feel bad about what you're posting and you're worried about what people say. Yeah. Now, the, what often happens in phase one is you realize nobody's listening or following <laughs> So quickly you start to realize, oh, nobody's listening. I actually want people to realize this. And then you can kind of move on to phase two and figure out, okay, what is the rhythm? How do I keep this going? How do I play long games like that? Yeah. Um, do you have a sense for when you shifted to your own phase two in, in my made-up framework? Yeah, I would say right around the one-year mark because I pretty much recorded an episode every... And, you know, when I take in these podcasting courses, they had some said some version of that, like you're going to hate the first several recordings, right? But the first year I recorded pretty much every single week, except the, like the week between, uh, like right before New Year. And I was like really like very close to burning out and I realized I just couldn't sustain it. So that's where I made this transition from phase one to phase two, which was do I need to be podcasting every single week of the year? No. Let me just like, let me try to think long-term sustainability versus like short-term. Uh, so this was again, like a multi-year process, but I eventually went to podcasting eight months of the year and it would be like, you know, basically three months on, one month off, three months on, one month off. And then this year I'm going down to seven months of the year um, and then potentially next year, maybe only six months, but on the off months, we do replay episodes, uh, but I'm designing it. So we basically take our most popular episodes, uh, and, and then we replay them on the, uh, off months. And I let people know, Hey guys, you know, we're on break from the podcast and, but please enjoy 
you know, a replay from one of our most popular episodes. So. I love this. Uh, it's something I've been thinking about. Uh, my, I haven't really designed this. I've just sort of stopped for a month or more at the time. And I mean, there's no episodes. The thing is, I, I've never gotten emails before, but now I have a, a bit more listeners. What have you yeah. noticed? Is there any cost to that in terms of following or things like that? The the taking a break, you're yeah. saying? Uh, yeah, I can, while we're talking, I can actually pull up some stats. So actually have some real stuff here. Live stats, I love it. We are connected yeah. to the internet and we are bringing in the data people. <laughs> <laughs> so I um, I had never taken a sabbatical from the podcast and I took that last from last November through April. So November, December, January, February, March, and then April. So this is, I, I recorded my last episode in November 2022, that month had 22,437. And from December to April, no, uh, like replay episodes. So I'm just going to get ballparks. Um, December 21,000, January 28,000, February 23,000, March 23,000, April 24,000. So and then, negligible. You're, you're not yeah. growing, but you're not shrinking either. Yeah, exactly. And for me, I don't know, like, I know people differ on this, but like after some level, the download numbers are a little bit of a vanity metric because ultimately it's about making sure the right people are listening to your podcast versus, you know, like all people. Yeah, which is a a great uh, thing about podcasts that people don't realize. It's a very intimate relationship and... Often when people are big fans of a podcast, they love all of it, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. your niche specifically, you don't need that like tens of thousands of people. Yeah. A thousand people listening to an episode yep. is incredibly valuable for you yep. because you're talking to a very specific person. Yep. You're their lens onto entrepreneurship, right? Like health, yep. health professionals want to figure out all this stuff, but through your eyes. Yeah. Um, did you realize that at first or was that a slow, uh, I, I, I'm implying yeah. you understand that, which I assume you do, but yeah. Yeah. I think now I do eight years in, I don't think, you know, to be completely honest, Paul, like because I didn't take any like business classes and I was figuring out stuff like I had a really hard time internalizing that people saw me as an expert, even though like I was doing the stuff that I was sharing. Um, so yeah, that's been a journey. Uh, but I think you're spot on. Like, I mean, I get really nice emails from listeners saying, you know, I've listened to you for a lot of years, you know, literally there was somebody left a review said, you know, I think about like, when I'm struggling with something, I would, I think, what would Mel do in this situation? Like, that's an amazingly beautiful thing, you know? And that's why I love podcasting because of, I don't know, there's just no other medium that I know of, like where you get that level of intimacy and connection because you're literally in the ears of folks, right? And it's just something really powerful about it. Yeah, it's, it's very unique. I was, I was riding around on the bike this morning, listening to your episode about uh, your reflections. I think this was a month or two ago about your sort of awakening of moving away from becoming this successful entrepreneur. I think early on, it seemed like you were very um, 
drawn to this idea of becoming like seven figure entrepreneur, <laughs> right? Um, talk to me about that. How, how did you decide you wanted to aim at this? Was it other people you were following? Was it just something you didn't have a, another way of seeing success? To be completely honest, uh, like I, you know, one of the things I, I really have struggled with in my life is um, I feel like because I didn't go the medical school route, uh, there was like a disappointment with my parents, even though I got a PhD, it's, you know. Um, so there was this, I think, subconscious part of me that I like disappointed my parents, disappointed my community, all of that stuff. Like I wasn't achieving something and financial is often the metric. So I looked basically at like, what are the highest like paid physicians could make? And let me just aim for that, you know, and aim even higher so that like nobody can question it. And it's so superficial. Like when I think about it now, I don't even think it was like a conscious thing, but um, that's where I kind of landed. But I think as I've gotten older, I've realized there's so much more nuances in there, right? Like generally high income, right? Especially in traditional W-2 work means a lot of sacrifice of your own time. You know, your employer owns your time, all of that kind of stuff. And I just didn't see any of that stuff. Yeah. So we'll definitely dive into that. When when did it shift from doing a podcast on the side uh, to, oh, this might be something that could take off? I know you didn't end up leaving until the pandemic. Yeah. But uh, when were the first, like, oh, my gosh, this stuff is taking off? Yeah. And how were you making money? Yeah. So the early days, uh, so before I started the podcast, I think I had put some feelers out like in some Facebook groups and uh, a company had reached out to me that was basically creating, I forgot what it was, like a website design service, I think, or it could have been that or electronic health record for therapists. And they were like, hey, um, have you thought about sponsors on the podcast? And at that point, I told them no, because not that the money, but it was more like, I'm so new to podcasting and I guess there was some gut feel in there. I was like, I feel like introducing a sponsor at the beginning when I didn't have any sort of loyalty or recognition. Uh, I felt like that might devalue what I was saying or even, you know, or yeah, like degrade the brand in some sort of way. So I declined that. Um, I launched in March, 2015. Pretty much, I would say from April, I started getting emails from other therapists asking how to do this podcasting thing. How did you launch your podcast? How did you get in this like no, new and noteworthy thing? What did you do? And so I I remember like, gosh, this is, you know, and this is a whole side thing, but like when I was working at the group practice, like I, you know, I was getting like reimbursed maybe 40 to $70 a session, right? And and I was like, you know what? I want to like double that, right? Or <laughs> at least double that. So I, I charged, I can't remember if it was exactly like 150 or 200, something around in that ballpark. And people were willing to pay it. And I was like, oh my gosh. So, but I quickly realized I was just doing the same training type for income, but just on more higher, right? Um, so in November of that year, I launched a podcasting course for, by, well, for, 
I called it initially for health, wellness, and fitness podcasters because I was so scared to niche my course down, even though therapists were my primary listeners. Um, But we had eight buyers at $297 for that course. And that's when I realized that there could be potentially something there. Yeah, what I've seen is it it doesn't matter the dollar amount as much. Mm -hmm. It's just that, oh, wow, people... This is something I created. I genuinely put it out there. People are buying this. This it, this vote of confidence is so yeah. powerful. Yeah. Yep. And I think I'm a big fan of this because it it's exactly what you said. It propels you to do something like you. It propels you and gives you a courage that you probably wouldn't have on your own. Right? Like you've got one-on-one concept. Oh gosh, this is amazing. Now I'm going to, you know, think about a course and People are saying like they want to know more about it and what should be in the course. They're telling me what should be in there. Like, you know, we've got beta pricing and oh my gosh, people are signing up. Like, yeah, 100%. So, so pandemic happens in 2020. Um, yeah. You are um, working in an office still. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about what happened over the, those few months and uh, yeah. what came next. So I was down to one day of clinical work. Uh, again, I'm the example of like very slow and deliberate. Like I literally <laughs> pulled back like half day at a time. I love so. that though. I think this is something I talk about in my book is that <laughs> this like leap. When was the moment you knew and took this bold action? It's fake. If you dive into people's stories, and this is really what I'm trying to do with this podcast is it's this long process. Yeah. It often takes 10, 15 years of this small thing, that small right. thing, then this happened. Yep. And then often the trigger at the end is just like, oh yeah, I was headed in this direction anyway, and now it's finally time. I did yeah. 99% of the work. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely not as glorious as sometimes it's made out to be. Um, and then I think the that perspective also negates... Um, the nuances of people's lives, right? Like, so for example, for me, we had just bought our first home. So there were like mortgages to think about. And, you know, we were like thinking about having a child, right? So a lot of budgeting stuff. And so it just didn't make sense, you know, at on any sort of level for me to make that kind of leap. Um, and in fact, for me, you know, I've struggled part of, you know, we started our conversation talking about the cost of like, the work ethic and all of this, but I think part of it for me has been a struggle with constant, anxi- like persistent anxiety. And I got to, I think, a level, if I had made that leap, just the proverbial leap, I think my anxiety would have flooded me. And I don't, I think it would have crippled me. So I, yeah. I needed to do this in slow, intentional, bite-sized pieces. Yeah, I love examples like this because it it tells people, oh, the courageous leap is a thing people do and it gets celebrated, but there are other models. Yeah. Yeah. And for for me, the off-ramp was freelancing. So I wasn't in love with freelancing, but it was, okay, this is something I can do to make money. I have no idea what's coming next, but I'll just buy some time and uh, figure it out as I go. So... 2020, um, you go all in on this. Uh, talk to me about uh, the shift from aiming at this seven-figure 
entrepreneur yep. sort of model toward your framework frame of thinking about this, which I really love is more like healthy business. I love the yeah. word healthy business as opposed to just thinking about money. Yeah. Um, and to like close the loop on that previous question, I was down at one day of clinical work uh, and, you know, we learned about COVID-19. I was doing um, assessments at this clinic and about two weeks in, they were like, hey, uh, Mal, like, or Dr. B, can you come back in? Because, you know, there's just, we were so like slammed. I was in, I, I do these assessments in probably like a 10 foot by 10 foot room, no windows, no ventilation. 100% guaranteed I would have gotten COVID. I wasn't worried about me getting COVID, but my partner has asthma. Uh, we, you know, our baby was an acute baby, um, had some breathing issues early on. And I was like, there is no way I'm going to, you know, like no amount of money is worth like, you know, potentially like losing a child or, you know, any of those things. So that's what caused it. Um, what shifted for me. So it is like, I think the transformation started happening in 20. 2018 when our baby was born so we actually weren't sure we could have our own kids we struggled with almost two years with infertility and i every screening paul like every i mean you understand this like every screening everything was perfectly normal uh and i was getting ready to go to podcast movement which happened to be in philadelphia that year uh monday morning and it's like five in the morning like i'm brushing my teeth my wife screams come out and there's like water all over the carpet and i was like what in the world is going on and then like it clicks we sprint i mean like drive i've never i don't even remember that drive drive to the er um and it's like 30 32 and a half or basically i think 32 half weeks something around there and they basically tell us they get we have to stay there until the baby's until at least thirty six weeks. And at that point, they'll do emergency C section and get her out. We lasted about four days, and the baby was having uh, basically the placenta was collapsing on the baby, and so the baby was having difficulty breathing. And so there ended up needing to be an emergency C section on that Thursday morning at around three a.m. And I remember sitting. I mean, it's always like this. Like, what you think of? The movies, right? Like I remember, like hold that hospital white lighting, right? It's this, the worst, it's worse, right? And very like I literally by myself in this. There's three chairs there. I'm in this hallway. They said I couldn't go in during the delivery because there, it was emergency. It was too high risk. And I remember them saying like the baby's out. Then I don't hear the baby crying. I don't hear anything. Uh, I don't hear my, like, I mean, my wife's at this point, like under, under, right. So, uh, and then it's like the longest 90 seconds of my life. And finally I hear the baby crying, come to find out they had tried to give my wife, um, to sleep and the met, they didn't work. So they had to give, I guess I, I didn't learn all this, but these, the beds actually rotate different ways and to make the, like the, I don't know like name but like uh make her go under and it the baby ended up getting some of it and so uh that was what the delay was and i shared that because you know at that point um seven and a half weeks early three pounds 12 ounces barely the size of a football um 
I mean, I, I have some early pictures. It's like, she was like literally, you know, that big. And two and a half weeks in the NICU, uh, saw her like visit her every day. And then followed by a year and a half of early childhood intervention because she had low muscle tone and couldn't sit up on her own. So I just share all of that because in 2021 made me stop focusing on revenue actually happened in 2018 because I realized how close, how precious life was. And we can all have it taken away from you and the things that we think are the most important, you know. Um, and my, literally, my wife could have died and my baby could have died. You know? And so I just thought, you know, I want, I always wanted a daughter and I wanted to design I just thought, you know, what if I stop measuring everything based on revenue? But what if I start more measuring it based on the quality of connection that I have with my my wife and with our baby? And so I immediately dropped to a four-day work week. So we did daddy-daughter days on Fridays. Uh, first year and a half was all PT, like early childhood intervention stuff. So... Yeah, we have videos of this where, you know, they are literally teaching these kids like how to do stuff, right? So, I mean, there's one exercise I would do where I would prop her up against a wall and I would be like, I say it emotional, but be like, you know, like a foot away and I'd be like, come to data. And then she'd like have this fear and then she would see me and then she'd walk and then we'd go back like just a little bit further. And then, you know, and then we'd try that again over and over. So I don't know when you do all of that stuff, it just, it puts life into perspective. It puts business into perspective, you know? Uh, I mean, what is the point of accomplishing all of this, right? If we can't be fully present with the people that we love the most, you know, that's at the core of it for me. So. Yeah, it's wow. I appreciate you sharing that much. I think I mean, we're very lucky with like a healthy delivery and a baby, but I mean, just she's 12, 13 weeks now and you just understand like what a little kid means. Like it really is everything. It It is made everything so clear for my wife and I around how like really doubling down on how we were already trying to build our life. I think before it was a vague sense of we want time and freedom in our life and now it is this is the actual way we want to spend that time and freedom yeah yep how have you designed um like how how do you spend your weeks uh around spending time with your daughter maybe in the first couple of years and how you're doing it now yeah um so this will be she just started preschool, so this will be our first summer. So this will be a new experiment here. But the first um, first several years, so, you know, I just have this thing where, like, I love, like, home-cooked meals, right? So we would have home-cooked meals, a lot of time together. Fridays were always daddy-daughter days. So those PTs, once she, like, kind of graduated, uh, we moved them to, you know, my whole thing was to give her lots of experiences over stuff, right? And so I thought, okay, what are some realistic experiences that we can give? Because okay, so first started like at the park, like daily trips to the park, that moved to like arboretums, then to museums. Um, and what I really wanted her 
to do is a couple of things. So one is like learn to love nature and, uh, and then learn to like, not sort of be dependent on like tech. Right. So we actually tried for a season where we like to die pet thing. And then we either were noticed like there were some subtle changes in her behaviors. And so I was like, you know what, let's not do that. So, um, we've kind of not done that. I mean, she watches TV, you know, a couple of times in the morning a week, but it's, t- it's on the TV and like we used to watch, you know, it's not on a thing. And then once it's done, she knows once one little, you know, thing of super wings or whatever is done, it, you know, we're done. Right. And, and, uh, other than that, I mean, it's a lot of reading. Um, we're doing, uh, so my parents had this thing with my brother and I, where they would take us to the library every week. We each have to get seven books. And I carry that same extra. Yeah. <laughs> One for each day of the week, you know. Ain't no TV watching in Indian households. Come on now. <laughs> uh, so I, but we, I carry that tradition on with her. And so we do, um, we do library days after school. It's on Friday. And then we have this little thing where she picks her books and she, comes and cuddles with me in one of the library couches and we read one of the books and um we also a new ice cream shop opened up so that after library time it's ice cream to a daddy um then weekends i mean like it's just us and with our loved ones you know we try to i think we're so there's a couple of things we're really thinking through is like one is uh you know ali talks about this right like the skills and the universal toolbox and i love that phrasing because what I'm trying to do is help her develop skills that are translatable beyond a major so that they compound over time. And so we're still really early on, but you know, some of the things that I want is teach her how to build a computer, personal finance, coding, um, art, learning how to draw and paint, um, some sort of music, uh, definitely sports because I grew up playing basketball, uh, but not in a way that's, and I don't know, like, Again, this is such a grace. Like, I don't know that I ever all figured out, but I don't want it to become obsessive. I want her to think more holistically, right? Um, and I think that's the major stuff. One thing we've recently been talking about, I haven't, I may not have time to implement it this summer, but we were thinking about um, just grabbing like an Airbnb for a month in a random city. Uh, so first starting in the U.S., and just immersing her there in that culture and, you know, doing the camp there or, you know, uh, for a month, because it's just, that's such a different experience than like, a, you know, a weekend trip or a five day trip. Right. Um, and then coming back and then eventually over time, more international. I love that. I highly recommend that if only yeah. for your personal growth, I think mm-hmm. Angie and I living in other countries, uh, has been so powerful just Mm -hmm. i mean just going to a grocery store in a place that's not yours yeah you start noticing the world in a different way yeah and uh we're actually doing this this summer we're going back to taiwan for two or three months oh wow and yeah it's we're just so excited (laughs) yeah to like bring our daughter um of course our daughter won't remember this trip but um we can kind of see it through her eyes and helps helps me connect as well to Taiwan, yeah. which yeah. increasingly feels like an important home and place for me. Um, but yeah, I've, we're definitely looking to do that. I think 
what we should probably do in the future is just get all the creator dads in one place. <laughs> yeah. For a month. 100%. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> like every future startup like emerges out of that weekend, right? <laughs> well, this is this is a really interesting evolution because our paths are very new. Right. They yeah. weren't even yeah. legible until the early 2010s. And now there's more right. and more people doing them. There's people like you and I. I've been doing this for six years. Um, you've been doing it for eight plus years. And people are starting to have families because that was always the knock. Yeah, you can do this. Yep. What about when you have kids? Yeah. It's like, well, we're all figuring it out and finding out as we go. Um, yeah. But it's really yep. cool to see more, especially men doing this. I think mm. for me, uh, the men I was surrounded by in the corporate world were just like, yeah, family first. And then they're putting in 80 hours a week and you're mm-hmm. like, hmm, mm-hmm. this is not an interesting up. version <laughs> of family first. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, yeah and it, I think it's hard at the same time because if you're like me, I love what I'm doing. Boo-boo. Right? Boo-boo. And when Boo-boo. I don't do it, I sort of miss it. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's a constant balance. Right now, we're basically just taking it day by day and seeing what there's space for, seeing what there's not space for. Yeah, and I think especially in those early days, I think that's definitely the right approach, you know, because I think the counter to that is often imagining what you should be doing, right? This sort of mythical, like, I'm supposed to be doing this, and then like feeling like you never measure up. And I think that's it's not a good headspace, I think, for anyone, you know? Yeah, this is why I spent five years writing about detaching your identity from work and Mm. sort of memeing Mm. myself into my own ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So so it was a good preparation. Uh, I think you've gone through a similar shift too uh, around not seeing yourself. um, You had the way you put it was selling the couch is something I do, not Mm -hmm. who I am. Mm -hmm. How did you make that shift? Well, a lot of therapy, a lot of spiritual work. I think one, first and foremost, um, I think it's really hard for people like us that have achieved, right? And, uh, you know, in terms of either degrees or like professions, um, how did I make the shift? Um, I think part of it is, you know, like my podcast, I never, Paul, like, to be honest, like if I could get like a 100,000 downloads in like 10 years I would have been like oh my gosh this is amazing right and now you average that I would say every um what about four months or so right and I I kind of like again this has been very slow I thought like getting up to there you get up to that level and you're like oh this sound this is a little anticlimactic right and and you're like, maybe it'll be cool after 500,000. You get up there and you're like, oh, it's it's awesome and you're grateful for it. So I I think I've started, over time, I think I started to detach myself from the outcome, but more process on just more work on the process and getting better at the craft, you know? Um, and I think I much more enjoy that, you know? What are some of the tools you've been able to apply from the therapist toolkit to Mm -hmm. your current journey? So when I was doing therapy, you know, I worked particularly with a lot of like high achievers, very smart people. And one like common theme that would often come up is this sense of emptiness, especially when they 
or have been used to like succeeding so much and then they like quote unquote fail, right? Whether it's like bad grades or they didn't get a promotion, whatever it is, right? Um, so I think one thing I took away is like, I don't know, like putting our entire identity on achievement, right? And letting the ups and downs of our self-worth get get wrapped up in that. I think it's such a dangerous game to play, you know? So I think that's one. I think another lesson I I think I learned from therapy is, I mean, honestly, like letting go of the result, you know, I took a lot of, like I was trained in ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy. So which has a huge mindfulness component to it. And, you know, there's like this image, you know, there's a story that was like, say, you know, like imagine your thoughts, like leave running, you know, going down a stream. Right. And I think there's a lot of applicability to that, right? It's only when we get hooked with our thoughts that, and we make real meaning out of our thoughts that we usually get like, you know, hooked. Um, and so that's like a big thing for me. It's like, I don't know, like I heard this phrase, like, and it's probably a little bit of a cliche phrase, but like, don't get too high with the highs and don't get too low with the lows. And I think that's what I think I've gotten better with. Uh, I'm grateful for it. I'm like really humbled by it. And yet at the same time, it doesn't make me the whole of who I am. What's the work that when you stop doing it, you you miss and you crave doing a bit more of? I think like online creation in some sort of way. Um, because I love like, again, in bursts, right? Like we have a lot of systems and, you know, stuff like that. But like, if I don't do that, if I don't meaningly produce content uh to get what i'm feeling or thinking about um i think there's like a a void that i feel yeah do you have any path role models um pat flynn is one uh smart passive income because i think i think he models really well like being a parent and doing the entrepreneurship thing um so that's one uh i mean i really like rachel rogers you know particularly because there's just not a lot of like people of color entrepreneurs um so rachel rogers we should all be millionaires um yeah i mean those are like the the two kind of big ones that are that are coming to mind um you know what yeah what stands out about pat flynn's parenting he he lives out what he preaches right like you know his whole brand is smart passive income right and on the surface, that looks like another one of those like salesy, slimy, like, you know, I'm making, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. But then when you look at his life and, you know, he, at least what we can see, right. On social media and these, right. Like you see like how invested he is with his kids when he talks about, you know, being on the podcast, like on his podcast, how he records around the kid's schedule. I think he started a, you know, a new channel with, with his son on the Pokemon, Pokemon stuff. Yeah. So I think that the stuff like that's cool. And, uh, you know, I've, and I've gotten to meet Pat a couple of times and he's like a genuinely seems like a very kind guy. So I like that, you know. Um, I really admire how grounded he is despite that level of influence and success. Um, yeah, that's the stuff that I want, you know, sort of modeled and what I want to think about. I love that. Those those sort of role models are so important and I'm constantly looking for people that are on the dad path ahead of me. So 
definitely looking at people like you as well. But um, what's what is your ideal day now? Oh, um, so <laughs> I'm not going to bust out the Excel document here, the color coded one. But uh, you I, you have a color coded document? Yeah, I do. I have a color coded schedule. Uh, so Monday through Thursdays I work right. Like so, each day is themed because I realize I can only kind of focus on one thing. So for example. Tuesdays tend to be podcast and content creation days. Monday, Wednesdays are deep work days, usually related to our mastermind. Thursdays tend to be like our mastermind days. Um, the mornings from, again, I've had to like flex and figure this out. And right now, right, summer, I think we'll throw an interesting wrench into things. But um, nine, nine, basically nine to one is my deep work times. I usually have like uninterrupted time. One o'clock uh, to one o'clock to one forty-five. I grab a hike every single day. I do a three-mile hike. We have a park that's like five miles away. Perk of living in Pennsylvania because the temperatures are wonderful at one p.m. You know, so um, I grab a hike. Then I come back, grab a quick shower, do a twenty-five-minute power nap. I take a nap seven days a week. Uh, I grab yeah, I grab a three-mile hike five days a week. That turns to six miles on Saturdays and Sundays. And um, then I go, we usually go pick, pick up our daughter from school, drop her off at um, grandparents' house who watch her for a couple hours. And then right, like right now in about 20 minutes, I'm going to go pick her up. And then I am on daddy mode. So I will usually give her a bath. Uh, we usually cook a home cook meal. Um, so I'll do that. And then it's the three of us for the evening. Uh, lots of reading. And then um, hanging out, playing, and then uh, I wrap up my wife's uh, get. These are the little things, right? Which you just so appreciate having a thoughtful spouse, right? Like, so from 8 to 8.30 every day, my wife's like, just go do what you need to do. Kind of wind down because she knows how my brain works. So I have this acupressure mat that I lay on every night. And I listen to like Jay Shetty on the golf map. And then I do like a five minute journal thing um, just to kind of get everything out of my head. Uh, then I am in bed, honestly, by like 8.30, 8.45 at the latest. Uh, and then I get up at 4.50, usually get a workout in, like a hit workout. Again, this is not possible in the early days. This is only after to maybe start sleeping for the night. But it's pretty much my routine. I love that. It's it sounds like you basically aim to do about four to six hours of work a day. Is that <laughs> about right? Yeah. Yeah. So four yeah. days a week, you're working about twenty five to thirty hours a week. Yeah, exactly. And those last two hours of the uh, day, the three to five, it's what I call it learning time. So yeah. I basically thematically learn different. Oh, things. I'm in so your learning block. You are. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You are. Yeah, you are in my learning <laughs> block. It's okay. I can make them exceptions. Uh, I have to teach I, you something now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, come on, you got like two minutes to do this. But I'm learning like different stuff that I'm interested in right now. I'm learning how to write like better prompts on ChatGPT and, you know, um, on MidJourney as well. I've got one day for online course learning, one on podcast learning. Um, and that's pretty much my days. And then weekends, lots of time with family, uh, lots of time doing 
you know, adventures. We just made it out to Lancaster, Pennsylvania last weekend. Um, and pretty much it. I, I like a simple, boring life. You know, and I, I realize that more than ever now. It sounds delightful to me, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. So, it, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. No, it's you're. I mean, it's you're right. Like that's a great word, and I think that's been the biggest thing for me. It's like, what is a delightful life? And I think that's a question all of us should ask, right? And versus just assuming like this is what a delightful life should look like, you know. I love it. Where can people learn more about what you're up to? Where can they find the podcast, the other things you're working on, if they want to learn more? Yeah, absolutely. So the website is over at sellingthecouch.com. Uh, these days, I'm writing a lot on LinkedIn, so you can definitely search for my name and uh, and find me on LinkedIn. Uh, on LinkedIn, I mainly just write about my journey as a course creator and a podcaster and, you know, sort of the the real life sort of lessons I'm learning along the way. Amazing. Thank you so much for, for sharing. Um, excited to continue to follow your journey and learn from you and uh Glad to have connected with another girl dad doing the creator life out there. Yeah, absolutely, Paul. Uh, feelings are mutual, and I really am just grateful. I feel like this first of many conversations, so I really do appreciate you, and thank you for you know being such a good model for, for many of us as well. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Pathless Path. I love having these conversations. And if you want to support me, you can rate, review, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can also follow me on YouTube, where I post all the video interviews of this podcast as well. Finally, you can always support me by buying my book, The Pathless Path. It's a book I'm really proud of and has most of my best thinking and probably my best writing in it. And you can get it for less than 20 bucks. So... Grab that. It's in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Hey, all. Thanks for listening to the episode. I really appreciate the support and especially always love when people reach out letting me know what they think about the specific episodes. If you want to go deeper into Pathless Path World, you can, of course, check out my book. It's sold. It's going to hit 50,000 soon. I think by the time you're hearing this, it will probably have already sold 50,000, which is mind blowing. But I continue all the support of people that buy and share the book. If you want to meet others on Pathless Paths, I have a community, which you can find at pathlesspath.com membership, and you can join and meet hundreds of others around the world trying to make sense of weird paths and meeting others along the way. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a good day.